verses of the book of Revelation, which we've been studying all year long. And we're in the last chapter of the book, chapter 22. Today we'll be reading the fifth of five sections of the vision of John of the New Jerusalem. We're in 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever. So we're going to walk through this verse by verse and just look at each verse. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord, that the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the mouth, and flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. It's important as we come to this last part of the, this amazing book and the last part of this amazing book vision, this is the last part of this amazing Bible, to see that it is ending the story which began at the very beginning. Last week we traced the story of the temple image. From the Exodus to the New Jerusalem. But this morning we see that the story actually started earlier. Right in the Garden of Eden which was itself a temple where God and man dwelt together. When Adam failed in his duty, he was expelled. We know the garden was a temple because the same cherubim reappeared later symbolically guarding the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. First, we see in this passage the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And this reminds us of the Garden of Eden at the beginning of Genesis, where a river flowed out of Eden and watered the garden and ultimately the whole world. Genesis 2.10. Here, the river is very specifically flowing out from the Lord, from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now what is the significance of the river flowing out from the throne of God? Well, it means that He is the one who makes things flourish. It means that life and grace come from Him. Now this is 
most vividly understood in the context of the parts of the world that have wadis. A wadi is a dry riverbed which is completely bare until the rains come and the waters flow and, and turns the desert green. And the Bible uses this image to illustrate how the coming of the Lord perform, transforms this bare landscape. I've listed in the notes numerous times, just in the book of Isaiah, where we find this imagery used. But my favorite of all the passages in the Bible about the river of life is Psalm 46.4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. Now this seems to have been written right after the Sennacherib innocent incident. You're familiar with that? The Assyrians have laid siege to Jerusalem, cutting off all resources, including water, since unlike any other great ancient city, Jerusalem had no river that ran through it, and therefore had no substantial access to water. But God rescued them by sending them an angel of deliverance. And now in celebration, the psalmist writes, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Here, they were dying of thirst in the city, stuck in the city. And despairing of the fact that they have no water. And it turns out they did have water. They had the water of life because they had the Lord. And the psalmist is saying, there is a river that makes glad the city of our God. And so it is with us, even when it seems like we're dying of thirst in a spiritual way, we have a source of life flowing into our lives. And in the new Jerusalem, this river will flow into our lives like Niagara Falls, bright as crystal. The story of mankind began in the garden, a lush garden. But because of sin, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden into a wilderness. Finally, another Adam came, a second Adam. And instead of being tempted in the garden, he was tempted in the wilderness. And instead of succumbing to the temptation, he resisted. For this last Adam was not a mere man. He was the anointed one, anointed by the Spirit, who did all of his Father's will. But he was punished as if he was a terrible criminal. And in doing so, he was taking upon himself the punishment for all who would embrace him and trust him. So he fulfills all of God's promises. Promises of a promised life. Promises of paradise. Promises of the water of life. Promises of the Spirit poured out upon his people. Verse 2 tells us that this river of life <coughs> flows through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its seven kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Now this says some strange things about this river. First, it tells us that the river flows right down the middle of the street of the city. Then it says that the tree of life grows on both sides of the river. I'm sure many people have attempted to draw what this picture presents. And I'm sure everyone has been very unsuccessful. It doesn't sound like this makes sense. A river flowing through the middle of the street? Now, you could have a little stream, but this is not a little stream. This is a great river. And then you have the tree of life on both sides. The tree, not the trees, but the tree of life on both sides of the river. This isn't the way rivers and streets and trees work here in this world. But this is no ordinary river and no ordinary tree. This is the river of life, and this is the tree of life. And they're not found in this world, but in the promised world to come, which is a place of supreme rest and recuperation and nourishment and flourishing. The ultimate shalom. It's like Psalm 1, where the person who delights in God's law is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that it does, it prospers, but then multiplied by a thousand. And it's like John 15, 5, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, when you drink regular water, you will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water of life will never be thirsty again. Water that Jesus gives becomes a spray of water in the soul, welling up to eternal life. As he himself said in John 4. And then one more thing is added at the end of verse 2. The leaves of the tree of life were for the healing of the nations. God has graciously created a world for us that has that is filled with hidden healing. There is healing in insects. There's healing in eggs, there's healing in animals, there's healing in mold, there's healing in fungi, there's healing in bark, there's healing in bacteria, and there's healing in leaves. And many times there's one area of the world where this bush, that tree, or this kind of frog is found, and it's turned into a whole industry once it is People realize that this is a, has healing properties. It's isolated and harvested and brings healing to people all over the world. And people just take pills and they have no idea where this is coming from. That God put in creation somewhere, some obscure place, just so that they can be healed from whatever that they're struggling with. And 
so it is with the tree, with the leaves of the tree of life. But the leaves of this tree give not only physical healing, but spiritual healing to the sin-sick soul. So that as people from every nation, tribe, and language come limping and hobbling and crawling through the gates of the New Jerusalem, they receive healing for their bodies and their souls. And just as the size of the Holy of Holies went from a tiny little room to an enormous structure from the tabernacle to the temple and then to the New Jerusalem, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. So the little mustard seed of Eden's tree of life in the first garden has become a super tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit and able to bear them all year long and provide nests for all the birds of the air to fly into its branches from the four corners of the earth. Revelation 22.3 No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Here's another reference to Eden. Though this time, to what happened after the fall, not before. God cursed the world as a result of man's sin. Genesis 3, 14 and 19. Now in the new Jerusalem, the curse is finally removed. Like Paul talks about in Romans 8, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The curse of physical and spiritual death upon the human race in the first garden is removed by the Lamb in the last garden. At first, humanity was expelled from the garden sanctuary and its entrance was closed. But we read here that as a result of the redeeming work of the Lamb, the redeemed will be ushered into the opened gates of that sanctuary yet again. And their wounds and sorrows will be healed. Revelation 22:4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Last week we talked about how the temple signified the distance and the barriers between man and God. But now there's no more temple because there's no more distance and no more barriers. We will see his face. And this is what we were made for, to see the face of God. When we see sights on earth so beautiful that they take your breath away, and I hope all of you, I've had the privilege of being places and seeing things so beautiful that they take your breath away. But when that happens, we are but getting a glimpse, a distant glimpse of the face of God. 
on that day, it will no longer be a distant glimpse. It will be face to face. And forever. Remember what the unicorn in Narnia said as he beheld Aslan's land at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia of C.S. Lewis. He said, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old army is that sometimes it looked a little like this. And we will have the great privilege of having his name written on our foreheads. For there's no greater honor than to belong to Jesus, to be chosen by Jesus, to be loved by Jesus, to be married to Jesus, to have Jesus say, this one is mine. Revelation 22, 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp, nor for sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. The Bible uses language of night and darkness to talk about the darkness of the world that we live in. For instance, Romans 13, 11, and 12. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-8 You brethren, you brethren, are not in darkness, that the day of the Lord should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night, nor of darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the dead, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. It seems that the world is descending deeper and deeper into darkness. But that darkness won't last. The day is about to dawn. Christ was the morning star signaling that the daybreak was close at hand. And here in Revelation 21 and 22, we see its bright dawning. When the clouds and the night and the dark shadows of the old world are no longer able to diminish the light of Christ. This is the final sermon on the New Jerusalem. And it's the last segment of real vision in the book of Revelation. The rest of the chapter and the rest of the book is conclusion. It reminds me of the last paragraph of the last battle in the Narnia series. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for this, and for us, this is the end of all the stories 
And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been a, the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. And though this description of the new Jerusalem tells us many glorious things about the world in which believers will one day live, it also implies some things about our lives here on this earth. I went back through the entire description of the New Jerusalem from the beginning of chapter 21 through our passage today. And I wrote down the things that this that I saw that this vision implies about our present lives on earth. And here they are. It implies that in, at least in some sense, right now we're not with God. Not at least as we will be. Because in verse 3 it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Two, it implies that our lives involve tears, mourning, and pain. From verse 4, it implies that we're dying. Also from verse 4, it implies that we're thirsty. From verse 6, it implies that we're fighting. In verse 7, in verse 8, it implies that there are many enemies of God all around us. Verse 11 implies that we still have a long way to go before we are as beautiful as we will one day be. Verse 12 implies that the true tribes of Israel are being one to Christ. Verse 14 implies that the true church is being built on the foundation of the apostles. Verse 22 implies that though we have access to Christ now, it is far less than the access we will one day have. Verse 23 implies that we live in a dark world. <laughs> Verse 22.5 implies the same thing. In 21.8 and 27 it implies that we rub shoulders with many who are unclean, faithless, immoral, idolatrous, or false. Many whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 22.1 implies that though we will in the future, we do not presently live in the Garden of Eden. 22.1 also implies that though we have been given the water of life, there is still much more of it to come. Verse 2. Two of 22 implies that we live in a world which is not healed and will not be healed before that day. 
22.3 implies we live in a cursed world. Everything in our lives and in this world is cursed. Nothing works like it should. Everything requires toil and sweat and failure is frequent. 22.3 also implies that in one sense, God is not here. Not at least as it will be then. 22.3 also implies that though we worship Him now, we don't worship Him in the way we will. 22.4 implies we cannot now see God. Except, of course, through eyes of faith. And 22.5 implies that there's a difference between the way that we as believers reign now compared to how we will reign then. All of this implies that God knows what we're going through now. He knows the burdens. He knows our struggles. He knows the things we face. He knows the ways we're being faithful even when no one else notices. He knows that it's hard to keep waiting. It also implies that God knows what's best for us. That it is best for us to wait a long time before experiencing the fulfillment of His promises. Somehow, the waiting itself does us good. Somehow, the waiting is worthwhile. Someday, we will be glad that we had to wait so long. After 69 years of this life, I find it harder and harder to not get tired of all the trials, all the hassles, all the disappointments, all the burdens, all the messiness, all the brokenness, all the pain of life. But God's a lot smarter than I am. And He knows just what He's doing and exactly what I need. He wants us to know that this is all temporary. And to comfort us in the midst of this life. That's why he gives us this wonderful vision of the new Jerusalem. And I want to end by reading what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Oh Lord, you have set this before us in this vision. So many assurances of how worthwhile it is to wait in trust upon you. And Lord, we know that you've given us your spirit to help us in our weakness. We do grow, oh Lord, under the weight and the brokenness of our lives and of this world. 
And we thank you that for those who truly trust in you, there is this bright future, this bright hope set before us. Continue to strengthen us. Help us to run the race. Help us to finish the race. Help us to fight the good fight. Lord, we look forward to that day when we will fall at the end of the race into the arms of Jesus. Thank you that you have given us now the chance and get some refreshment from our Lord before we continue our journey any further. Thank you, dear Lord, for this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would nourish us and feed us, but also, Lord, remind us of the great day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of our yearnings and all of your promises will come to fruition. And we will see Jesus face to face. We pray in his great name.